Hello, Timberlake. That is powerful. Thanks for carving a few minutes out of your day to get together and to uh, sing, uh, pray, and think together. My name's Rick, and uh, we're just going to kind of take a, a little tour through this final installment or episode of uh, the idea that greater is what is in us through God than what is in the world that we live in. And uh, so we want to talk today about a very interesting phenomenon that's not just isolated to our culture, but uh, a lot of cultures have embraced this kind of thinking as well as a lot of points in history. So we're not the only ones that have crossed this, but uh, you, get, you got your handy notes there uh, that you can use and, and fill in the blanks when we get to it. So uh, uh, I'll try to make sure that, that, I, uh, that I make that happen. First thing I want to do is uh, take a look at that first blank. And uh, there's a, a phrase that most people think is found in the Bible. And this phrase is that God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, most people uh, sort of assume that, you know, that sounds like a Bible verse, uh, along with, uh, you know, cleanliness being next to godliness and things like that, sort of proverbs that seem like they fit in a, a book of wisdom. However, that particular phrase is part of the fabric, definitely of the Western civilization, but specifically of, of the, the United States history. We have uh, you know, sort of been embodied the, the group of people who think, you know, hey, God will help us when we help ourselves. You know, we're, this is, we're, gonna, we're kind of go-getters and go-givers and that kind of thing. And actually, that phrase is not found in the Bible, but was coined and uh, put into print by Benjamin Franklin in 1757 in a, a periodical that was common in those days called Poor Richard's Almanac. And, and that, that, he said that, and people thought, that's right. That's, that's good advice, right? And it's actually not original with him, but was uh, in the late 1600s, was actually used in a, in a discourse on government, but he, he appreciated that. And that kind of became part of the fabric of the American psyche. God helps those who help themselves. The thing about that phrase is that it's marginally true. It's fractionally true. And so it kind of has a ring of truth to it. God helps those who help themselves. You gotta do something. I mean, you know, you can just sit around and ask God to help you. You got to get up and, you know, make a move, right? And uh, so there's a fraction of truth in it because uh, the other part of the truth is God helps people who don't help themselves, and uh, God helps people who hurt themselves, and uh, God loves people who don't love themselves. And, and so it's a, it's a far more a complex arrangement if, when we speak on behalf of God. We want to take a look at that. But part of what we see today that is an extension of this idea, God helps those who help themselves, is what is called the self-help movement. Now, most of us, uh, we recognize that. Remember bookstores? Remember those back in the day? Ancient history, like five years ago? There's still a few around, but there's a big section of books called self-help books. Every bookstore has a section. And of course, uh, there's books on how to succeed, you know, how to, how to really put your best foot forward. There's self-help books that promise to give you the secret to being the best employee or salesperson or employer or, or leader. There's self-help books that show you how to make a million dollars while you're, you know, stay at home. Self-help books that tell men how to understand women. Uh, there are a lot of those. They're actually really long, thick, complicated books. <laughs> there's a lot of self-help books that tell women how to understand men. And, well, these are, these are mostly pamphlets. And... Uh, <laughs> smaller works, but Amazon has uh, 374,000 different titles in the self-help section. The top six categories, number one category is personal transformation, 
Over 79,000 titles on Amazon for personal transformation in the self-help area. Like this is, you can do this thing, right? And that's what we're drawn to. Number two, right behind us is relationships, then spirituality, success, and sex. Those are the top five. And then it's really curious to me, like, if you're kind of not being personally transformed and, you know, you don't really have any great relationships and you're kind of spiritually dead and you're not successful and you haven't had sex for a while, the next uh, uh, category is stress management, which makes sense, you know. So, <laughs> so it, it falls into, <laughs> into that understanding. In fact, what's really interesting is that when we study self-help books as a genre of a collection of books, a category, we find out that the self-help reader is actually 80% a repeat customer which means it didn't really work. That they're, we're continually, uh, the, the thing that a self-help book does is it causes you to seek other self-help books. And it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, in fact, way back, it, like in, in 1913, actually, there's a, a British writer who, his name is G.K. Chesterton. He's a theologian, a writer, a, a novelist. He, he was a contemporary of uh, Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings guy, and, and C.S. Lewis, and some of these guys who are really great, great writers. And, and he's very, got a very wicked kind of sense of humor. I, so I like Chesterton stuff. And I wish I could do a proper Chesterton English accent, but I won't try because it'd be embarrassing. But anyway, here's what he said in 1913. He said... Uh, there are books showing men how to succeed in almost everything, written by men who cannot even succeed in writing a book. <laughs> so as far back as the beginning of the 19th century, uh, 18th century, you know, all the way through from 1757 when Franklin, you know, wrote that in uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, there's been this idea that, hey, we, you know, we're necessary. Like, we, we got to help something happen. If God's going to really work in our life, you know, we got a lot to do with it. Now, it's interesting because um, for a few years on, uh, in Seattle, I had a radio show, and I hosted this three-hour daily talk show, talk to people, people call on the phone and all that kind of stuff. It was really fun. And I would have these guests. Well, one of the times uh, I, I had a chance to get a, a guest, and I was reminded of this when I was searching Amazon, that this individual is still one of the authors in the self-help section in Amazon now. And this was, you know, like a couple of, you know, a few years ago. So, so I was thinking, well, that's interesting. And I remember when I had her on, so we're in this radio, because radio is the perfect medium for me because people can't see me and they imagine a much better uh, person than this, you know. And, and so I'm, I'm on the radio and I got the headphones and we're in this little studio and, and this guest comes and, and she is, uh, this is what I read. I read the copy, you know, off the little screen. It's, this is what I said to her. Finally, a chance to talk to the author who writes the books you've been waiting for. The books that will cause you to, to uh, select the right partner and make love last. Best-selling author and renowned relationship expert, and I said her name, reveals everything you need to know about compatibility and shows you how to create a fulfilling relationship that you deserve. Please welcome her. You know, and then there was like this fake applause, you know, you know and, and there she was. And she had the headphones on and she had her like assistant person that drove her there and everything. She's like this famous person from, you know, Hollywood, LA and all this. And so I said, hey, well, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, if you're listening, you can call in, get all kinds of advice and it's gonna be fun. And so I said, now you're a relationship expert. That's right. And I said, okay, so marriage, right? She's like, yeah. She kind of looked at me, and I go, so are you married? And she goes like this. She, nobody can see on the radio, but she goes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, to me, that didn't seem like an unusual question, right? I mean, she's the renowned relationship expert. And I thought, hey, it's my show. I mean, I could ask that, and it seems like a reasonable question to ask. So I said, are you married? And she's like kind of looking at me like, eh. She goes, yes. And I'm thinking, okay. And I go, well, how long have you been married? She's like, and I said, what? <laughs> I just want to know how long you've been married. So, so then she said that she goes, 
25 years total. And the total part, you know, kind of, I thought, total. And then I said to her, how many times have you been married? And now she's just, she's just like, can't believe it. And she said, five. And I said, wow, you've been married five times and you're, you're, gonna, you're supposed to tell us how we can make love last? That was part of the pitch that I just read, right? Fulfilling relationships that you deserve, that you know, are, are lifelong. You know? And she said, well, that's the reason I'm an expert because I have so much experience. I said, well, okay. And then I said, well, hey, uh, we'll take some calls in a second. And uh, we went to this you know, little commercial break, you know, and, and she took the headphones off and threw them at me. And then stomped off. And so when we came back from the commercials, she's not there anymore. And uh, I thought, wow, I mean, this was like, kind of like a violent response to me asking these questions. And I realized that the one of this one's been married so many times, she throws stuff, you know? I mean, like, this, is, uh, this is inconvenient. But what I realized was that even the person who's the renowned expert on self-help is not really getting much help in this area. And th that's the thing that is important for us to uh, identify. Because there was a group of people very much... Uh, being advised to, to participate, you know, that you, know, you have to do something if God's going to work in your life. And these people uh, were, uh, lived in the Middle East long ago, and they actually lived in what's now modern-day Turkey, but at that time, it was uh, a place called Galatia, and it was a province about the size of the Olympic Peninsula. had a bunch of different towns, um, including, you know, the present-day capital of Turkey. And, and uh, there, were, there, were, uh, there was a pastor who went through these different cities and started churches. And so kind of cranking up Timberlake campuses, you know, all through this area. And the reason it's called Galatia is because these people were Gaelic. You know, you know what I mean when I say Gaelic people? Uh, people, you know, river dance, those guys, right? And actually, uh, in ancient history, I don't know how many of you remember this, those of you who are historians, but if you look at an old map of the world, France was called Gaul, right? And how many of you have been or you've heard about the famous airport, the great airport outside of Paris? <clears throat> it's, what is it called? It's named after Charles de Gaulle. The, the Gaelic people, they have a history there. And the largest group of Gaelic people lived in what is modern-day France, but a small group lived in, in Turkey. They were like a subset, but they were related. And these people, the reason it's important to know like, that they're Gaelic and you know, that they lived at this point in history is that they're not Jewish, okay? They're non-Jewish. They have no Jewish background whatsoever. So when Pastor Paul came through, he told them there was this Jewish man named Jesus who had... had paid for a relationship with God on their behalf, and it was offered to them, and, uh, and you know, they, they were just so excited, and they began to experience this incredible transforming power that Jesus Christ offered, and so uh, all this amazing stuff was happening. Well, Pastor Paul, he thought, man, these churches are doing great, right, and, and, uh, and so he moved on to other parts of the, the, the ancient world to start other churches, because this guy was like a, a real you know, church-starting pastor guy. And he gets the word back that something crazy is going on in Galatia, at, in these different cities where these churches are. That these guys that were, pretty, they're pretty sure they were out of Jerusalem, and they were Orthodox Jewish guys, and they came up, and they went to the churches, and they go, okay, just a second now. You know, Jesus, good guy. Real upgrade, you know, he, you know, he kind of was uh, kind of like uh, Judaism 2.0, right? He really helped uh, get us on the map again, you know, with, especially with the younger folk and all that. But he's not enough. 
Like if you think that you're going to have a relationship with God just because of Jesus, you gotta, there's a lot of self-help that needs to go on here. And you have to practice dietary laws. You have to, you know, um, make sure that you show up, you know, and do the whole thing with the feasts and the schedules and the temple and all the stuff. And then he said, you guys, you non-Jewish fellas, there's a little surgical procedure that you're going to need to go through that's a little bit sensitive, right? And so that's why when you read this part of the scripture, Paul is talking about circumcision. You know, you would think, what in the world? What is this, pediatrics, you know, section? But no, he's talking about uh, this incredible, uh, uh, you know, reality that these guys were enforcing this practice of religion. Now, you might say, well, Rick, so what? You know, I'm like... I'm an American, I don't, uh, not upset, you know, worried about that. But guess what? There, that same influence is in our world today, where people will say, hey, yeah, you know, I know you, you're, you know, kind of a spiritual person, but, you know, you have to belong to our organization or else, you, you know, you're not going to, you really have a relationship with God. Oh, you want to get married? <clears throat> you have to wear our costume and, you know, and make sure that you make the vows in our building. Right? Or, oh, you, in order for you to have a relationship with God, you have to you know, pray a specific number of times facing a certain direction. You know? Oh, no, you know, if you want to, and there's all this religion that's around us. And people that are saying, hey, unless you're involved, you know, it's not really available to you. It's self help religion. Now, self help in the Bible is called the law or legality or legalism, you know, this stuff you have to do. And man, Pastor Paul got so, he just got so. Um, passionate about addressing this to the people in Galatia, that he wrote a six-page letter to these, to these churches. And he said, circulate my letter to all these different churches and read it for these folks. And we have it in the new part of our Bible called the Letter to the Galatians. And it's six chapters, six pages. It's about a 20-minute read. And he, he just lays it all out there. He says, hey, who fooled you? Who tricked you? Who talked you into this thing? Did you think that it's Jesus plus you? Like you gotta help God to have a relationship with him? Nothing could be further from the truth. And he goes on, and it's a very, very um, insightful and interesting read for us today because we, we have people that are around us in media and you know, in all kinds of different methodology trying to say the same thing to us, that Jesus is not quite enough. You know, like God will only help people who help themselves. And what, what they're doing is they're sabotaging grace. Because grace means you and I bring nothing to this arrangement. Everything is something that is a free gift to us. It's by grace we were saved, through faith. It has nothing to do with us and our accomplishments and how many hoops we can jump through. And so it's important, I think, just to take a look at a couple just pieces of this, this letter, and then I hope that that creates kind of a curiosity, maybe, or a, a fascination to revisit that little letter in, in a Bible. And, you know, maybe you're here tonight, and you say, I don't even have a Bible. Like, I don't even know where Galatians is. Well, you know, there's a table of contents. We'll get you a Bible if you want one. They have them here at Timberlake for anybody who, who needs one. Or, as I always recommend, check into any hotel, open that little bedside table. There it is. And so you can do that as well. But the first thing that... Uh, that Pastor Paul, that I want to identify, is in, in the fourth chapter, um, he asked this question, how is that working for you? Okay? Because what he says to the folks there is, he said, tell me, you who have become so enamored by self-help or the law, you that, you know, you folks have now all fallen in love with all this, 
you know, all these necessary rituals and all this religion that you think you have to do. He said, listen, have you paid close attention to self-help? Have you paid close attention to the law? What he's saying is, it doesn't work. Even the people who write the self-help books aren't being helped. You know, 80% of the people who read self-help stuff are re return customers. I mean, it's a weird uh, dependency that, that gets developed in people's lives. And he's saying, look, the law does not work. You're so in love with the law. I've heard, you know, that you're willing to, you know, sort of sabotage grace, but it doesn't work. He's saying, like, you know, you could be as religious as you want, but that's not where you begin to experience the transforming power of God. And so it's important uh, that, we, that we understand and identify that. So that's the question. How's it working for you? A lot of us have backgrounds in, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, attempts to, you know, make God, you know, sort of like us. And grace is the idea that, hey, God already does. I mean, God helps you even if you can't help yourself, even if you hurt yourself, even if you hurt others. It's, it's, that's what grace is. It's all about receiving. And, and most people feel that uh, theolog uh, theologically and uh, historically that this little six-page letter is what's called the sort of emancipation proclamation of Christianity, this, this freedom document that sets us free from religion. And maybe you're new to Timberlake and you sort of brought with you the baggage of whatever your religious past is and you think that's what these folks are like. And it's not true. The, the, the grace that is available to us because of what Jesus Christ did as he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, that is a free gift to everyone free. And it has no requirements on our behalf. The next thing that uh, Pastor Paul did is he was really tricky. So go with me on this little adventure. These Jewish guys out of Jerusalem with all the outfit and the, you know, and they, they looked like the official, they had their PhDs, you know, and they're very intelligent guys and they were explaining everything. And they were, what they said is, listen, we're sons of Abraham. You know, that's, that's, that was kind of the, the calling card of the, the, the Jewish uh, uh, leaders there. They were like, hey, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Abraham's our father. Now, Abraham, if you haven't, you know, maybe you haven't read the Bible much, but you've seen the movie, right? But he's, one of, he's the original guy that forges this relationship with God. Like Abraham, you know, says, hey, you know, I'm going to lead you. And the way it worked, and you remember the Abraham story, this could be a little bit new, but just as a reminder, he's like an old guy. He's this old guy, and his wife is old, and they have no children, and God speaks to this guy, this original Jewish family, and says, hey, you should go look at the, uh, the sand on the seashore. That's how many kids you're going to have. Try to count all the sand. And he's like, what? And he gives him this promise. You're going to be the father of a great nation. Like, you're, you know, your impact on history is going to be, uh, you know, hard to fathom, right? And God said, I'm going to demonstrate what a relationship with me is like as I demonstrate, you know, as I walk with your family, the Jewish people throughout history, and people will see how God relates to us. And so Abraham was like, fantastic, but impractical. I don't see how this could happen. So God says, just trust me. Trust me. We find out later in other uh, references to Abraham's relationship with God that Abraham really did trust God. And, and the Bible says it was that belief that God could keep his word that was the basis of their relationship. 
Trust, right? Not his performance, but just trust. Well, after a couple years, you know, Abraham sits around, you know, with his wife Sarah, and they say, well, I think God needs some help here. Like, I mean, seriously. This is a great idea, you know, us having a big family, but, you know, like, I'm 90, okay? I'm not going to be having a baby. This is, you know, this is not going to happen. But I have uh, a housekeeper who's in her reproductive prime, and she would be, like, awesome. She could be, like, a surrogate mother for our family, and then we could, you know, and we could still nurture and everything like, and so Abraham, you know, Abraham says, yeah, let's do that. So they decided to do the self-help approach with, with, with this promise, and it was a disaster, and they have a son, and his name is Ishmael, and, and uh, the Bible says he was like just kind of uh, out of control, you know, kid, and he grew up to be a middle schooler, and then this miracle happened. We don't have any details about the miracle. I mean, this is like, you know, thousands of years pre-Viagra, you know, I mean, this is like, we don't know what happened, but like, you know, one evening, like, you know, and something happened, and Sarah's pregnant, and she has this baby, and uh, wow, you know, Isaac, they name him. You know what Isaac means in Hebrew? It means, <laughs> that's what it means. It means to laugh out loud, because when she was told, you're going to have a baby, she just laughed, and then when she had the baby, she said, let's name him Laugh, you know, because, I mean, this is hilarious, what's happening here, and any of you know that the the whole story of the Jewish people, they all say, you know, Father Abraham. We are sons of Abraham. Well, Ishmael became the father of the Arab nation, all the Arab nations, and Isaac, the father of all the uh, Jewish nations, and they're both sons of Abraham. And that's why, you know, we have such an amazing, um, difficult time in the Middle East, in case you ever wondered. Because back in this day, the firstborn son gets the farm. The farm's called Israel, right? That's Palestine, that area. And so Ishmael, the Arab nation, says, hey, we're the firstborn son of Abraham. Obviously, we were like, you know, 12, 13 years pre-Isaac. you know, Isaac. Like, we were there. We're the firstborn son of Abraham, and we get the farm. And the Jewish nation says, yeah, well, you're not the firstborn son of the promise. Okay, the promise was to Sarah. So her kid is the real kid that gets the farm. And guess what? Have you noticed they still haven't settled who gets the farm? It's kind of still up in the air, right? Well, here's what happens is these guys came into Galatia and they said, we're sons of Abraham, okay? So listen to what we're saying. They kind of pulled rank and, you know, threw their pedigree out there. So Paul says to them, hey, look, we all have the same father, but who's your mama? That's what he was saying to them. He's saying, yeah, you guys are sons of Abraham. Guess what? So are we, Right? Everybody, you know, we all have, but he said, just remember that Abraham had two sons, one by the housekeeper, you know, the slave woman, and one by the free woman. And he goes on to say, like, look, this is an example of, of your relationship with God. If someone is inviting you to be enslaved by religion, then you can tell who your mom is. Like, you know, you are the child of the slave woman. Like, you don't have a future. Right? And he's using this, this incredibly crafty metaphor. He's kind of turning uh, the argument that the Jewish guys had, had made to the Galatian people. He's turning it upside down. And he's saying, yeah, look, you guys come in here bragging that you're sons of Abraham. But guess what? Okay, Abraham had two sons. And one of them was free and one of them was a slave. Now, which one are you? And he began to tell people, like, look, we are the son of you know, sons and daughters, 
that are born free. Like we are not under this, this system that is so restrictive and is just, you know, uh, includes us trying to make a difference, you know, in order for God to work in our lives. Incredibly profound and important argument, but very kind of obscure, you know, if, if you don't have a Jewish background, right? And, you know, you read that and you think, you're sons of Abraham, he had two, I don't know what he's talking about here. But to those folks, it was like he took this argument that these guys had brought and he just unraveled it. And they were like, yeah. In fact, we know from the story of Isaac and Ishmael that, you know, Ishmael, it said, was always given Isaac a bad time. And then Paul says, who's given who a bad time here? Are you guys the church? Are you giving the Jewish leaders a bad time? Or are they giving you a bad time? Well, now you can tell who's who. And he helped them sort it out that way. And what he was getting at is he was trying to help them understand that we place our hope where we find our help. Okay? If, if we think that we're going to be helped by religion, then we put our hope in religion. If we think that we're going to find our help in a relationship with God, then that's where we place our hope in. And the way he said it was in Galatians 4.24, these two births, Isaac, right, and Ishmael, these two births, these two children, represent two ways of being in relationship with God. So he's saying, look, we can either approach God, you know, with the self-help idea, like we got to do all this stuff in order for God to do something in our lives, like God only helps those who help themselves, or we can just say, there's only one way to explain the fact that God loves me. It's just a miracle. Like, it's a miracle that God has reached out to me. I, I, I had nothing to offer. And it's important for us to understand this because it helps to explain a lot of things in our world and helps us to have kind of a perspective so we don't get caught in this entanglement that's called religion. You know, when Jesus came... He came to save us from religion. I mean, Jesus, he, he met people who were confused and lost and, and desperate and, and filled with grief and had, you know, just been miserable and, you know, they were working the streets and selling their bodies and they all came to Jesus and he accepted and transformed all of them. But very few religious people were transformed. Very few. Some, but not too many. Because it is the most difficult thing to break free from. And this letter to the people, the Gaelic people in this part of the world, modern-day Turkey, is a very important letter for us to have an understanding of and to, to live in this freedom. I mean, it's in this letter that Paul says, hey, guess what? It was for freedom that we were set free. Like, the reason that God cut us loose from religion is so we can be free and we can just love and live and understand God's dynamic in our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit. So... Do a little uh, sociology sidebar here for some of you sociology students, but the fathers of sociology, there's three old guys. One of them's French, his name is Emile Durkheim, and then there's two German guys, Karl Marx, you've probably heard of that guy, and then uh, there's a guy named Max Weber, but we call him Max Weber, because that's how you say it in Germany. Because if you say Max Weber, it sounds like he's a barbecue guy, you know, but no, it's Max Weber. But anyway, these guys, they, they came up with some very insightful stuff, and it, it's uh, reinforced by what Paul is telling the people and also what's happening in our lives. You see, Durkheim said that we, you and I, are influenced by institutional power, okay? Which is true. And what, what does institutional power mean? Um, politics, government, uh, you know, civic, city stuff, state stuff, 
I mean, you know, we are influenced by that. I mean, we live in an institutional world. And what is, what's the institution that, that threatens us in case, if we do something wrong? We'll put you in an institution called jail unless you straighten up. And we're like, ugh. You know, that's powerful, right? So they were, he was right. And when he, he took a look at, you know, societies and he said, man, you know, what really explains human behavior is this ability for them to institutionalize and organize. Well, then Marx came along and he said, that's eh, good, it's good. But I think you're missing it because what really, really, if you want to explain humans, it's this, it's money. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the balance of power is based on the, you know, the division of labor. It's based on who has the cash, who manufactures, who's an employee, you know, who are the people that have to work for the people. And, and he explained everything economically. He said, if you want to figure out why people are really doing something, you better, you know, you go to find the cash flow, you know. That's how, that explains people. And, you know, he made a good point there because, hey, you know, money is a very powerful thing, and we're influenced by that, right? And uh, so a lot of people thought what he taught was very insightful. And then here comes Weber, and he says, well, good one. I, you know, institutional life, that's important. And sure, you can get threatened with an institution called jail, and wow, that's really, you know, that's, that's convincing. And then he said economic uh, power, that's, that's, that's true, and, you know, you'll send them to the jailhouse and, you know, Marx will send them to the poorhouse. But he said, I think it's religion. That's the most powerful explanation for how the humans operate. And he came up with what's called the Protestant work ethic and he did all this study. But what he said was that religion and spiritual, spiritual power is what really explains the humans. Because, hey, you know, institutional, like Durkheim says, you know, hey, we'll send you to jail. Right? Mark says, we'll send you to the poorhouse. But what? Spiritual leaders said, we'll send you to hell. You know? That's power. That'll, that'll, that'll move people. And he began to explain this, and it was very interesting uh, because even in our modern day world, if you think about what would motivate a 19 year old, you know, kid, in my view, a kid, you know, a 19 year old adult, you know, in, in the prime of their life to strap explosives to their body and go to a crowded marketplace and blow themselves up with as many people as they could take? Is that because they want to be the president of a political structure or they want to be the CEO of a financial structure or because they want something spiritual? That, that it's, it's the cleric, you see? It's not the president, it's not the CEO, but it's the preacher that has all the power. And if you get all three of these together, you know, institutional power, with an economic base and a religious motivation, you could make your own little ISIS thing. And that's what's happening in our world. It's this idea that, hey, it's very important for us not to get screwed up in terms of spirituality and religion because that's the most powerful force in terms of motivating and explaining human behavior. That's the stuff Jesus came to set us free. Like when, when Jesus said, I'm going to set you free, you're thinking, from, like, what do you mean? From this idea that you have to live, you know, uh, in some way accountable to an institutional life, or you have to live in some way accountable to an economic life, or in some way you have to live accountable to some kind of a religious life, Jesus said, I'm setting you free. You cannot explain the behavior of the ministry and life of Jesus Christ in institutional terms, economic terms, or religious terms. And that blew everyone's mind. It still does today. Most people will put, you know, 
almost all of us, will put each other in one of these categories, right? Because that's, that's how we think it works. And Jesus came to totally rock this thing. Well, there's a guy uh, I wanted to remind you of. His name is Lee Strobel. Many of you have heard of Lee Strobel. He's a, a journalist who actually was an atheist, and he doubted, you know, the, the claims of Christ. So he wrote a book called The Case for Faith, and he went and did his journalism thing, you know, reporting and research, and he interviewed all these people, and he, he actually changed his mind. And uh, he wrote a, a really important book called The Case for Faith, and it's very good. It's a, a book that if you think that Christianity is, doesn't have intellectual integrity, then I recommend that book because it's an exercise of a, a master journalist and talking to experts all over the world. Well, he's followed it up recently with another book, um, The Case for Grace. And you can see how this letter to the Galatians is a you know, book about grace. And so this, is a, this book's really great. I recommend it. Brand new book. He tells the story of a guy named Cody Huff. And Cody was a homeless uh, adult guy in Las Vegas, Nevada. He'd been a drug dealer, a burglar, a counterfeiter, a scammer. He'd been beaten. He'd been stabbed. He'd been shot at. And uh, he, had, he had actually, at one point in his life, sat on a, just a huge stack of cash. I mean, he just had, as a drug dealer, he was just really rolling. And then he, you know, he wasted it all, mostly on heroin. And he ended up in a field in Las Vegas, Nevada, in a homeless kind of shanty town. And uh, he tells his story in this book um, that he had been three months without a shower. And that he started to smell so bad that he actually said that the other people in the homeless shanty town were complaining. So he said, when you have other people, you know, who are kind of shower optional and they're saying, dude, you need help, you need to take a shower, he knew, you know, like, he just, for him, it was the bottom of the bottom. I mean, it was like, I can't even, I mean, I'm being rejected by the homeless community because, you know, my, my life has, has gone so far down. And uh, some guy said to him, hey, listen, I know a place where you can get a shower. So, th- so he listened up. He said, it's, we got to walk long ways, but there's a church, and uh, it's called the Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, and if you show up on a Sunday morning, they'll let us take a shower, they'll give us brand, you know, people donate clothing, we got to find clothes that fit you, brand, you know, new stuff, and uh, then they feed you breakfast, and then if you want, you can stay for church, but they don't make you stay, you know, and he said, I'm doing it, man, for the shower mostly, right, so he went there. And he showed up, and they had to walk a long way, seven miles from where this camp was. And so, you know, he got up early and walked and walked. He got there, and, uh, you know, he was waiting in line. And here comes this lady. Uh, <laughs> her name was Michelle. And she sees Cody. And he's, he said his hair was, like, unintentionally Rastafarian. You know what I mean? Just, you know, he just sticks and weeds. And, you know, his beard was just weird, like, growing, you know, in different levels and He's just like a really scary-looking guy. And this lady comes up to him, and she said, what's your name? And he said, Cody. And he said his teeth, you know, he hadn't brushed his teeth forever. I mean, he just, he was a mess. Um, a lot of teeth were missing from, you know, like meth, you know, uh, activity. So she says to him, my name is Michelle, and you look like you need a hug. And he said, I, I've been told I don't smell too well. She said, you smell fine to me. And she gave him this big hug, and she said, Cody... God loves you. And it kind of blew his mind because he said, uh, I don't love me. There's no way God could love me. You know, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't love people like me. I mean, I, I have nothing to offer God. Like, I am at the bottom of the bottom, and I'm, I'm like begging for a shower, right? He said, 
I'm homeless, I'm a drug addict, I'm a bad person, and Jesus cannot love me. You see how when we start to believe that God helps those who help themselves, it's about as far from what is true in his case, because God helps those who can't help themselves, who hurt themselves, who are a huge disappointment to themselves. God loves people who don't love themselves. And when that happened, he said, this is what the book says, it was like a light switch turned on. And I wanted to know more about a God who would love me, even though I didn't agree that he would. And it started a process in his life. He started walking every Sunday morning for, you know, the shower and the breakfast, but more, you know, to hear more about this God. Eventually, uh, he got down on his knees out in that field in Las Vegas where he lived. And uh, he said he, he thinks he prayed for 10 to 15 minutes where he just, he didn't know how to pray, but he just started talking to God. And he just told him, help me, you know, do something. Like, if you love me, I guess I believe that. And he was transformed. He had a bunch of amazing things happen to him. Um, but it started a cycle in his life and uh, he started, you know, really pursuing an understanding of who, who this God would be. And uh, eight years later, here's a picture of uh, Lee Strobel, the author of the book. That's Lee right there on the left. That's Cody Huff. Cody is now an ordained minister at the New Hope Church in Las Vegas. He works with boundless energy as a volunteer of a ministry called Broken Chains, which is a ministry that helps feed and house the homeless in Las Vegas. And he runs his office out of the same field where he lived as a homeless man and where he hit his knees and said to God, I can't help myself. Can you help me? That is grace. That's grace. And that is what Pastor Paul delivered to the church in Galatia. That is what Jesus Christ died on the cross for and we have to be very careful not to talk ourselves out of it because we're, you know, civilized and educated and Western and, and we're bombarded all the time with these messages because we live in a self-help culture and that is a contradiction to what God offers. So I guess for those of you who are sort of longtime followers of Jesus on the journey, this is probably just a reminder, Right? And so, you know, you would say, hey, that's right. That's what Galatians says, you know. But there's a chance maybe there's somebody here tonight, and um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you don't love yourself. Maybe you're the kind of person who would say, if you knew who I really was, you'd wonder why I'm even here. Well, I'm glad you are, because God is here, and he loves us period. And what we are offered is life in Jesus Christ, period. Not Jesus plus us doing a bunch of stuff. And then, you know, you might say to me, well, what is, what's the thing about, I heard him talk about water baptism or, you know, hey, guess, by the way, there's an incredible, uh, you want to, on your sign-up card, there's a class for, you know, getting to know the Bible. Great idea. Sign up for that, right? It's starting in April. So you think, well, you know, we are doing a bunch of stuff like that, you know, but guess what? It's not that we don't do great things. 
when we follow Christ. It's just that those things don't save us. Hey, man, I give part of my income uh, you know, to the local church because I'm so grateful uh, for, for God's power in my life. But I'm not buying anything that's already been paid for. You know, I mean, I'm just, we operate, you know, we're, we're, in, we're, in, we're gonna be in growth groups, why? Because we're built for community. We're, we're built for relationships, but not because we have to do that in order for God to do something. God's already done it. And uh, he wants to save us from, you know, getting caught in political, economic, and religious weirdness. So let me pray with you.